0: Hi, I'm Tori, co editor and producer of The Pod by Gen Zine. In today's episode, Gen Zine writer Billy Harris sat down to talk with Lauren Shippen. Lauren Shippen is a YA author and writer best known for her hit fiction podcasts. Her work explores topics such as queer identities and coming of age stories, often doing so through the genre of fantasy. In this interview, she talks about her life as a working artist the current state of media today, advice for young aspiring artists, college, mental health, and so much more. It's a great conversation and we are so happy to share. And with that, let's jump into the episode.
1: Hi, I am Lauren Shippen. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm a fiction podcaster and author, um, most known for my fiction podcast, The Bright Sessions, which is about people with supernatural abilities in therapy and three YA novels that I wrote within that universe. Um, but I've written now probably, I don't know, eight or nine fiction podcasts. So that's kind of my main main space, and I'm just so excited to be here.
2: As you mentioned, you have written several books. Your most recent book, Some Faraway Place, just came out this month. Congratulations. Thank you. You act, you sing, you write, you create amazing podcasts. But for (laughs) younger creatives, it can sometimes be daunting to try to pursue all of their artistic aspirations. What have you found to be helpful when trying to express yourself in all of these ways?
1: That's a great question. I think that there is different creative fuel for for each person, right? We all get inspiration and we all get fuel from different places. So I think that one of the most important things you can do as a creative, as you're figuring out your own voice and the modes of creativity that you enjoy, is to figure out what kind of fuel fills your gas tank. Like this is something that me and other writer friends will talk about a lot when we're feeling depleted or burnt out and it's, it's a little bit different from, you know, writer's block, but you just, where you don't have the, the sort of the juice to do the creative thing that you normally love doing. A great thing to do can be to refill that that gas tank. Um, and that can be, for me, that's often reading books or getting really into like a new fandom or a new ship and like going deep, deep down fangirling in, in a particular thing. Or it can mean playing video games for other people. It's I have a friend who for her, it's like she goes to Disneyland for the day and that's her fuel. It doesn't even have to be something that's related to storytelling or related to creativity. But I think finding those things that kind of kickstart your brain um, is is super important and and recognizing the moments when you need that fuel. And I think something also... um, that I wouldn't have thought of but then the fact that you you said you're like you're a writer and an actor and a singer i always forget that i i act and sing and that's actually how i started out in my creative life and creative career um and now i'm primarily a writer and director and it's so funny that I think of myself primarily as those things now, because six years ago, I didn't think that I could be those things at all. And so something that I wish I had known when I was you know, 20 is that you don't have to limit yourself cr- creatively. If there is a main thing that you really love doing for, for me, it was acting and singing. That's great. Pursue that, but also don't be afraid to try out different aspects of Whatever you're doing, if you're you know a theater major, if you you are doing performance, learn stagecraft, learn stage combat, learn directing, learn playwriting, because you might find that you love one of those things just as much as your primary creative outlet. And even if you don't, you'll definitely learn something about your own creativity through trying on those different hats.
2: I think that that is really terrific advice. And you had mentioned that you are mostly known for your Bright Sessions podcast. For those who don't know, can you talk about what the Bright Sessions universe is?
1: Yeah, so um, it is. it started as a fiction podcast. Um, and for those of, of you who might not be familiar with what that is, because I encounter those people all the time, basically it's like an, an old-fashioned radio play. It's, it's a TV show for your ears. It's you know all, all of those, those things that people will call it. But it's just, for me, was a way to create something all my all on my own so it started very simply as two people sitting in a room and talking about feelings and superpowers, basically. So um, the original cast of The Bright Sessions is Dr. Bright, who's a therapist, and three different patients of hers who all have different supernatural abilities. Throughout the course of seven seasons of The Bright Sessions, we've been running since 2015, uh, the world expands. We meet more atypicals. That's what they're called in this universe, these people with abilities. And Uh, encounter a lot of new abilities, encounter, you know, the sketchy government organization that studies these people, and and it gets a sort of into a bigger mystery. And as part of that universe, I also wrote three young adult novels that each follow a different atypical as they grow into their power and their relationships and uh, sort of learn how to live with these unique abilities. And it's really not a you know superhero show like even though these people have supernatural abilities it's very much about emotions and about the the struggles of living with something that makes you different and the strengths that you can actually find within that and it's really more of a character study and relationship study um but through the lens of this sci-fi world
2: so you mentioned that yeah the bright sessions really is more of a character study Um, and it covers timely subjects such as mental health and lgbtq plus identities and relationships self-love human morality um but as you said it is in itself a science fiction podcast um what was your inspiration behind tackling such relevant topics in a more artistic or stylistic way
1: i think you know that the core inspiration for tackling those to- topics is the fact that I am a queer person with mental health issues <laughs> and so it was like, just like very easy to sort of access those things as a storytelling point um and i think because of of the what certainly began as like a very personal telling of my own struggle with my anxiety disorder i wanted to separate myself a little bit from it. And I've always loved science fiction. I've always loved fantasy, and I love how we're able to explore these big questions and small questions about humanity and about the the nature of human beings and relationships and and growth in your life through these abstract concepts like space travel or alien invasion or apocalypse or whatever it is. And so for me it was really a way to Kind of take these these thorny things that I was thinking about, like anxiety and depression and being overwhelmed, being lost in your life, being lonely and abstracting them through supernatural abilities so that I could explore them in a more concrete way um because they were manifested in the way that, that these people are experiencing the world um and yeah just really following in the footsteps of of all of the sci-fi shows that I've I've loved one of the shows that's always on my mind is Battlestar Galactica because it's this you know big space epic with you know tons of space travel and and weird you know sci-fi mysteries but it's also a really interesting look at religion and faith and and what people believe, um, but through this this completely non-religious lens, which I think is so interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And The Bright Sessions is beloved by listeners of all ages. So I was curious if, in your experience, younger listeners have interacted with the show in a different way compared to older fans, or if they have taken different meanings with them into their own lives.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think that there is a difference in interaction from younger listeners. Um, I think that, that younger listeners tend to engage with it in the same way that like I engaged with things when I was a teen and, and and honestly the way that I engage with the media that I love now, which is you get so in the weeds and 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 detailed with the world. And I, I have like a discord of people who support It's a Book Artist, my, my podcast company. And like, you know, we're constantly talking about like timeline stuff in the Bright Sessions and these like what would happen if this character did this and sort of all of these headcanons that people have and the headcanons that I have about my own characters and all of these really like nitty gritty detailed stuff about the world and the characters and and ships and all of that kind of stuff. And that's very much how I engage with with media myself. Whereas I think there are a lot of older fans who like I just got an email today from someone being like hey I'm enjoying the show just wanted to let you know and it was you know from like an adult who who works you know at, at, they work in a mental health facility and they were they loved listening to it and it's just like I I encounter that a lot more with older fans where they're just like this is great I like listening to it and then that's kind of like the end of the interaction versus I think younger fans both being you know uh in I think the I think if you're going to be like a, a fan type person, like a person for whom fandom is a big part of your life, that starts in your adolescent years usually. Um and so I think that those people not only are they more inclined to engage in a more detailed level with with things, but also they're more technologically savvy and can find me on Twitter and can find me on Tumblr and all of that stuff and and uh kind of be part of building this world all together, which is really, really nice. But I mean, that that said, I think in terms of what people take away from it, I've gotten messages from people in their teens talking about how it helped them, you know, come out to their parents or helped them talk to somebody about maybe finding a therapist or addressing some mental health struggles that they were going through. And I've also gotten messages from like lots of adults saying pretty much the same thing of like, oh, this helped me recognize... This part of my sexuality that I, I had had otherwise never really understood before, or this really helped me get out of this toxic relationship that I was in or it spurred me to go to therapy. like these these very you know big, hefty things that people people come to you with, and that's something that is sort of universal, which makes me feel really great. <laughs> I really am happy that people have been able to find meaning and um, belonging in, in the bright sessions.
2: I would say that that is very much true based on what I have seen online. Um, To come on over a little bit, you created the College Tapes, which is a spinoff show for beloved high school characters, Caleb and Adam, which conveys very raw moments of growing older and finding yourself during a time when everyone around you seems to have things figured out. And I was wondering, and kind of in the same vein of what you were just saying, what was your motivations on creating a show that focuses on college students, something that we rarely see in comparison to how much high school media we have? Um, and what do you hope that your younger listeners will take with them from the show? Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I will say that the motivation for it really just came from a place of of loving Caleb and Adam so much and wanting to continue their story. Um, we first released the college tapes on the, the platform that sponsored it, Luminary last year. And uh, now it's being released widely on our main feed and, and we'll wrap up in the next couple of weeks. And it's despite the fact that we made it last year, it's an idea that that's sort of been in my head. And then I started to talk to Brigham Snow, who plays Caleb about Back in 2017, as we were making the third season of The Bright Sessions. And I was sort of, I knew that heading into the fourth season of The Bright Sessions, that that was going to be sort of the last season of the main arc of the show. And was thinking about potential future things. And remember, you know, saying to Brigham, like, I I, I think it's right to end it now because the, the arc is coming to a natural close. But also, like, man, if I could tell this particular story about Caleb and Adam you know, in a couple of years when they're in college, like, that would be so fun. And then we were lucky enough to do it. And I think the reason that it was something I wanted to explore even back then is because, and, you know, minor spoilers for the original run of The Bright Sessions and The Infinite Noise here, um, a big part of, of Caleb and Adam's initial arc together is becoming friends and uh, Caleb explaining to Adam that he has this atypical ability and then ultimately them admitting feelings for each other and them falling in love and being in a relationship and going through their ups and downs. But otherwise, you know, being this very solid relationship. And I think that, you know, being an adult, I, I have the, the um, hindsight of looking at back at, you know, high school and things like that and realizing that's incredibly unusual and incredibly difficult for high school relationships to exist beyond adolescence. Um, and most couples in high school don't stay together. But Caleb and Adam are two characters that I really like having together. And so I, I was sort of curious to explore what, where would they be after they go to different colleges? Because I know that they're going to go to different colleges. And what would that do to them? And then also, both of them end the series in sort of a really solid place, in a place that's very... Emotionally mature and very um, secure for 17, 18 year olds. And I remember sort of feeling that way when I was 17 or 18 and going to college and being like, okay, yes, I. I know the path that I'm on and I I know what the next four years are going to look like sort of and and things feel good and and secure and then getting to the end of college and being like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready for the real world. And so I, I thought it'd be interesting to explore these two characters who who had worked really hard for their stability to be put on the back foot a little bit and be in different places of of stability in college, and what it would look like for them to be a little bit more mature, a little bit older, and to find that stability again. And the college shapes hasn't finished airing uh, to the to the wider public yet, so i will I will stop stop it there. But I think college is just a really unique time. It was a really special time for, for me. I, I had a really hard time in middle and high school. And and so college was sort of the first time I actually found people that I thought understood me and made real friends. Um and so I think that like it's really there's not a lot of media that I think portrays college outside of the like party culture, which was not my personal experience of college. And I think the thing that, that was most formative for me is the, is the people that I met and the things that I learned from them and the things that I learned, uh, you know, from school that helped shape who I am today. And so I wanted to look at that and look at these two people who had been everything to each other for so long now have these communities of their own and have their own friends in college and sort of how that shapes them a little bit differently. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just a blast to write and imagine being in college with a superpower.
2: (laughs) You yourself, I believe are a millennial, but you write so many high school and college age characters that are so real and come off as so genuine in their, um, dialect and in the way that they act and just in their overall being. And I was wondering, do you ever consult with teenagers or do you pull more, from your own personal experiences, how do you go about writing um, such younger perspectives? God,
1: that's so that's so nice to hear. Cause I like I know, I know that there have been things that that we put into the college tapes. People are like, yeah, nobody really says that anymore. Like, you know, there are those little things that you'll stumble over. Um, so it's just nice to hear that they come across as genuine. And I think that that we, we didn't consult it was the the college tapes was written by myself and Brigham Snow and Megan Fitzmartin. And we didn't consult with any any teenagers and we're all in our 30s um, and but I think I think for us because all of us consume a lot of YA media and and Megan and I that's both sort of like our primary audience that we're writing for we really care about um, giving great stories to teenagers and 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 you know making sure that, that young people have good stories that reflect them and challenge them and, and all of that stuff that was so important to us growing up Um, But I I think that sort of I guess there's a twofold answer. The first is that I spend a lot of time on social media and um, try to follow kind of what's going on in terms of the way that people talk and what people find funny and um, and sort of what the yeah what the new slang is and, and and. what trends people are into, things like that. Because I think that's the thing that will sort of come across as inauthentic. If you lean too hard into like slang that you find by Googling like Gen Z slang, you're going to end up saying something really cringy and weird. Whereas if you spend time organically in those spaces over time, um, I've been on Tumblr for 13 years. Like I joined Tumblr like a year after it was made. And you know, it's not it's not nearly as big with Gen Z as it was with like my particular stage of millennials, I don't think. Um, obviously, because TikTok has come into and I think taken up a lot of that space. But there's still young people on there and, and and young people coming on all the time. And so to sort of see over the past 13 years, the, the changing language, the changing comedy, the changing meme culture, the changing media consumption and expectation from media. I think being the proverbial frog in the boiling pot of social media helps me from not boiling to death. if that makes sense. like the the pot is getting warmer, and so i'm I'm sort of like adapting to it slowly versus just like drop being dropped into a hot pot. Um, and then the the second thing is that, despite the fact that different generations have different, challenges facing them have different, certainly now for the past, you know, several generations, different relationships to technology, um, different slang, different media consumption, all of that kind of stuff. Ultimately, human beings are just human beings. And young people are are largely the same throughout history. And, and adults are largely the same throughout history. You know, people are just people. Um, and so I think that the most important thing that we think about when writing is just making sure that these people feel real and that they feel grounded and they feel specific. And sometimes that can mean making, you know, a young character extremely online and trying to find the ways in which young people communicate so that that, you know, general Zer feels authentic. And sometimes it's just focusing on, well, what's the emotional journey of this person and how do, how does somebody who's 21 and going th- through this react? And... Obviously, the answer to that is different depending on how you want to how you want to take it. Um, But I think just recognizing that, like, I was reading an interesting article the other day about how um, the idea of generations is a pretty new invention and one that is like in constant debate amongst sociologists. Like there are a lot of people, there are a lot of sociologists that are like the whole generational divide is like really stupid. And there are other people saying like. The like there are different trends, but actually we need to be looking at it in in groups of four years, not you know eleven or whatever it is now. and And so I think that, like we put up these fences around our generational communities in a way that I, I think is makes a lot of sense because it can it can ha- be helpful to know who you're going to relate to and sort of how you can speak to other people because of what you assume they know, but can also kind of create divisions where there don't need to be there's pros and cons to it. And so the thing that I always try to focus on, regardless of the age of person that I'm writing, because I wrote a show recently where the two main characters are 45 and 65. And that's a whole different thing too. And so I think just making making sure that all of the people are just people first and foremost, and then all the generational stuff is essentially just like window dressing on the real characters.
2: And you had mentioned... Um that you, you're writing for a YA audience, and that is something that you deeply care about. You deeply care about providing media uh, to younger people, which is amazing, since I think a lot of young people definitely do look at what's out right now and sigh a little bit at the way that they are portrayed. Um, Has that always been something that you have known you've been wanting to do? Is You mentioned that, like, growing up, that was something that meant a lot to you. Um, I'm curious to know, just in general, what media for young people has meant to you in your life and uh, why that is something that you care so deeply about now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I was a young person, I was, yeah, reading young adult stuff. Um, And I think what was so exciting to me about, and I mean, there's a a whole other conversation of, like, the sort of literary... uh, grouping of young adults like that category in of itself is so problematic in so many ways because it encompasses so many different genres and ages and it's kind of a mess and shouldn't have been invented in the first place but whatever um but I I was a really really voracious reader and watcher of television growing up and I there were so many incredible young adult books that I would read and then all the stuff we were assigned for for school or like the more sort of literary canon books I was reading every now and then I would come across something and just be like hell yeah like this is this is good like this really is compelling but more often than not the stuff that i resonated with as young person in school was the stuff that was initially written for a young audience that then became a classic like lord of the flies and catcher in the rye um and you know some some shakespeare even i think is is sort of you know geared towards a younger audience or certainly like a, a mass commercial audience and there's definitely an overlap in in those two things sometimes um and One of the things that I really loved about going to bookstores and going to the young adult section is that within that section, find any possible world that I wanted to dive into. You know, I could find mystery. I could find romance. I could find fantasy and sci-fi and comedy and all of these different things. And they all had really real characters that I cared about. And I cared about their journeys. And a lot of the characters, you know… Felt like they like I could be those characters because they were my age or you know um they were close to my age and 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 it felt like I could relate versus adult literature which even now sometimes I'll read and I'll just be like ugh like it's just so dour like can I have fun can I like go off and like ride a dragon somewhere and have a good time um so I think that that certainly as a as a kid I found a lot of relatability within young adult literature and less so in in. Fiction, like adult fiction. Whereas with television, all the TV that I was watching was all made for adults. It was, you know, the X-Files and Battlestar Galactica and um Bones. I was like really into Bones when it was on, um, and the West Wing, like all these shows sort of from the 90s that I was finding through uh Netflix DVDs, because that's what Netflix used to be. And we would order DVDs, and that's how I watched all of the X-Files. Um and I loved I loved those those shows so much. And then I would go and watch, you know, the stuff that was made for teens. And it wasn't as exciting to me, with with some big exceptions, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Veronica Mars, huge loved them. Gilmore Girls when was incredibly formative. Um but, you know, for the most part, I felt like a lot of the young adult media was sort of trying to talk down to me, whereas the thing that was so compelling about stuff like Veronica Mars and Gilmore Girls and Buffy the Vampire Slayer is that they aren't trying to pander to a teen audience. It's just good writing that happens to be about young people. And so when I, you know, became an adult and was consuming even more and more media because I was starting to work in media, I realized I was sort of consuming the the same stuff. I was still reading a lot of young adult and I was still struggling to find TV shows that really – resonated and then increasingly over the past 10 years teen media on TV has gotten better and better Um, and like one of my favorite shows now is Sex Education on Netflix I think it's a brilliantly written show that does so much good work and has amazing performances and it's and it's all about teens but also the, the adult characters you really care about and that's something that I really would love to see more of in teen media is having adult characters that you really care about because I remember growing up it's like the adult characters are just like the parents and you barely ever see them and you don't care. And I think that having adult characters that you care about and that have relationships with their kids or, you know, their nieces, and nephews or their students or whatever is is a really, really
2: wonderful thing. I don't know if that answered your question at all. <laughs> it did. It did. OK. <laughs> um, looking at your work as a whole, there is a lot of representation in your work. And I was curious, how do you go about writing? characters with identities that are different than yours in a way that is authentic and true
1: yeah i mean this is this is probably the thing that takes up the most mental space in my head um around writing because it's it's incredibly important and incredibly hard and like i would never claim that i've done a perfect job or that there isn't lots and lots of room to grow and i think you know part of the conversation with this stuff for me is also uh, and sort of increasingly publicly hostile environment to trying around representation there's a lot of of it must be perfect or we don't want it that i see from from folks consuming media and 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 that's not something that necessarily i've encountered as a reaction to, to my work um but i think that I've had lots of conversations with lots of other writers around the, the you know the fear of yeah trying to put in a character that has an identity different than yours and maybe fumbling and maybe it's not perfect and then the entire work basically being thrown out of the window because you didn't you you know didn't do that thing perfectly. And so when I say it takes a lot of like mental space like a lot of that is 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 deep deep anxiety around doing it wrong. Um and trying to navigate like I think the very valid and very justified desire from audiences, and, and this I think is is not even attached to like age group. I, I'm seeing this in plenty of peers and things like that. Um, people wanting good representation, and also the fear that nobody's going to give you grace or room to make a mistake and then improve, because you know there's sort of just a more direct line from audiences to creators now in a way that's wonderful, but also can be very scary as a creator sometimes. Um, so, i'm um, yeah, I'm constantly thinking about it and constantly wondering what I can say in in my characters and what I can't say in my characters, and where it's appropriate for me to represent a particular experience and where it's not. And I think the the most important part of that is obviously ideally getting people involved who have that experience, especially if part of the conversation is going to be, Around that experience, you know, for one of the Bright Sessions bonus episodes about a um, non-binary shapeshifter, it was really important to me that the writer of that episode be non-binary because the entire episode is is about that person's identity. And so, you know, I got one of my friends who's a non-binary, incredible writer, to write that episode. Um, and they actually ended up acting in it as well because they just did like they were just such so perfect for the role that they had written. Um, and. And I think that, you know, like, it would never be my place to tell an experience about being a, you know, a a, a black woman in America. Like, that's not that's not my place to say I would never I would never try to tell that story. But I still want to make sure that my works include Black women, right? Like, I want to make sure that I'm that there are characters there who are different from me. And so I think, you know, the first step is figuring out, like, okay, well, I want to make sure that this person's experience is authentic, but also it's not going to be about their experiences, this identity necessarily. Like, that's not going to be the main focus of the work because that's not my story to tell. And then, of course, you know, ideally, you get, if if you do want to tell the story or have that be a part of their character, you get a writer of that identity to, to to be part of that. But budgetarily, that's not always possible because I, I also like will never ask a person of a marginalized identity to write something and then not pay them. Like that's the worst thing you could do. Um. So, you know, sometimes when it comes to budgets, it's like I only have the budget to make the show and that means I'm writing it for free and I'm the only writer who can be there because I'm doing it for free. Um. But even in those situations or in situations where, like you know time like there is a budget but the timeline is such that you know I have to write it in a month or whatever getting sensitivity readers is like you know in, incredibly important like I've had sensitive sensitivity readers on all of my books um and I wrote a podcast called Bridgewater uh, um that came out a couple of months ago that has the lead characters um are are not native american but it it talks a lot about um, it's about the Bridgewater Triangle, which is this place in Massachusetts where there's lots of spooky stuff that happens. And a big piece of that region's history is the Wampanoag um, people and their legends. And so it was really important to me that we have, you know, an, a native sensitivity reader to read through all of the scripts and make sure that the in the conversations in which we were talking about the folklore or in in moments in which there are Wampanoag characters that 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 was being represented well, even if I was the sole writer on the project. And um, yeah, I don't I don't have a perfect answer for it. But I think, you know, doing as much reading as you can reading stories from people's perspectives, making sure that you're consulting with people when you have the budget, um, who have those identities and are professional sensitivity readers or professional writers is incredibly important. And then I think also ensuring that when you're including identities that are not your own, that you're not then trying to claim a narrative around living as that identity when you are not that identity, if that makes sense. Like, I think, I think it's important to... I think it's incredibly important and I think it's our job as storytellers to in- include as many perspectives and as many identities as we can in a story, but we also have to know where our limitations are and, you know, making sure to include those voices without speaking for them. I guess is the way that I would I would put that.
2: So, speaking about being an artist and finding difficulty in writing, a lot of young creatives may be looking ahead and thinking, "Wow, I'm trying to pursue a full-time career in art and they may feel overwhelmed. I'm wondering what is the most challenging but also rewarding part of being a full-time artist in your experience?
1: Definitely, the most challenging is just paying the bills, you know, like that's just the most challenging of of being an adult at all. And I'm really, really fortunate to get to pay my bills from creative work full time. Like that's something that that has been the case for the past three years, and I'm incredibly fortunate. Um, but the time that preceded that was a lot of doing creative work and, you know, holding down part-time jobs to pay the bills while I did the creative work on the side. And I think the thing that I didn't anticipate that's a challenge now is like, okay, I'm a full-time writer. I'm a full-time, you know, writer, director, producer, whatever. So surely I can sort of, you know, sit back and work hard and create like a workflow for myself and, and a budget for myself that makes sense. When in reality, it's like... No, like I'm still you know running into those periods where it's like oh my god wait what am I doing six months from now am I gonna have rent in the next in the last half of 2022 like I've got to make sure to line up a job now but then also it can't overlap with this job that I have right now you know like trying to sort of piece those things together is really hard um so I think yeah I think just like being conscious of the fact that pursuing a creative career is really thankless a lot of the time and really hard. I remember my, um, I've, my uncles uh, work in um, theater, and uh, they've been big mentors of, of mine throughout my life. And when I told them that I wanted to be an actress when I was in, in high school, they were very, very supportive. But they also said, if there's anything you can do that will make you just as happy as acting, do that instead because basically you you have to it has to be the thing that you need to do because otherwise like you're not going to have a work life balance necessarily for quite some time um and that's really hard and your your work becomes your life and your work collaborators become your friends and that's sort of the whole thing but that's also one of the wonderful things about it like i i think the, the one of the huge benefits of the career that i've had is that I have made some incredible friends through the the people that I've, I've cast in the Bright Sessions, through writers I've met, through other podcasters. I met my, my partner through podcasting. Like it's been an incredible community to be a part of. And it's something that I never would have had access to had I not dedicated myself to pursuing it creatively. And I think, you know, the other side of that too is the community of, of, listeners and readers that that I've I've gained over the years that make, make it all feel worthwhile. You know, it, it's it's always a wonderful thing when like, you know, someone you love reads your thing or listens to your thing and is like, oh my God, it's so good. I'm so proud of you. And and that's really nice. But it, it's it's weirdly like never as nice as hearing from a complete stranger that the thing you made meant something to them. Like there's something about hearing from a stranger that you made an impact that just makes you feel like the world is just that much smaller and that much cozier in a way that like I've not been able to access through any other means and so I think that that's one of the huge benefits of of creating is just the the community that you get from it
2: for our last question I was wondering is there a piece of advice you would like to give young people especially young creatives that you feel is important to know and would like to impart with them? as the interview comes to a close
1: yeah one, one of the things that i encountered i lived in la for for eight years um moved there right after i graduated college and hollywood has a very like sort of strict way of being like this is the way that you structure a tv script and this is the way that you produce it and this is the way that you break into television and this is the way that you you know pitch to film festivals and this is the way you audition and all of this kind of stuff of like this is how we've done it and this is how we're going to continue to do it And of course, that's completely collapsed over the past 10 years. Like, streaming broke that. And (laughs) I think that part of why there's a lot of, like, growing pains in traditional media right now is because this way of doing things has sort of imploded. And there are a lot of people who are having to learn new ways of doing things, a lot of people who are being exploited because those same structures are not being applied to the new stuff. You know, it's sort of this weird tension of, like... It's good for us to break the old modes of doing things. But wait a second, actually, like the the labor movements that happened in early Hollywood are important and we should be paying people. And and so, like, let's keep that structure, but not throw out maybe like the storytelling structures or like the way in which we go through these processes. So it, it, I think that, like, that's something that I certainly I sort of entered the LA entertainment machine at a time when that was starting to collapse, but there was still like a very prescriptive way of doing things. And I think one of the the best choices I made was to step outside of that thing entirely and say, I'm just going to make a fiction podcast because nobody knows what's going on over here yet. Um, And Welcome Tonight feels cool and weird. And I think I could do something maybe a little bit like that. And And let's just try it because nobody can tell me no and i think that that's and you know now 6 years later there are thoughts about how you make a fiction podcast and there's ways of doing you know there's sort of all of these these modes that are being applied to how to make a fiction podcast and so i guess my advice to people is like not no <laughs> screw that like i i think that if you if you have a way of telling a story through whatever means excites you most whether it's a podcast whether it's you know posting chapters of a book on a website whether it's self publishing through Amazon whether it's making a a whole you know TV series through TikTok like don't let anybody especially if you go into sort of traditional entertainment career after after college like, don't let anybody tell you that, like, oh, actually, you can't do it that way. <laughs> because chances are they're completely wrong and you're going to start off, ma- you know, some new cool trend in storytelling and break something open that's going to be really exciting for everybody. And so don't be afraid to sort of – I hate the uh... – the Silicon Valley axiom of move fast and break things, because I think as we've seen with tech, that was like a very, very bad principle to uh, <laughs> to apply to making startups, because that's how we get, you know, democracy ruining Facebook, because they just moved fast and they broke a lot of stuff. But I think when it comes to mo- modes of storytelling, that's actually pretty good. Like, you don't have to move fast. You don't have to be the first one out of the gate to do something. I was not the first person to make a fiction podcast by any means. But yeah, break stuff, break the conventions, you know, simplify stuff, complicate stuff, just follow your storytelling instincts and, you know, take notes from trusted people that you're, that whatever you're trying to communicate is coming through. Like, this is not like a ignore everything that everybody tells you. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say, because I think that notes can be incredibly beneficial. But if someone's trying to fence you in with your own story, like, you don't necessarily
2: have to listen to them. Lauren, thank you so much for your inspirational words. We are so glad to have had you. That is Lauren Shippen, everyone. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much to Lauren and Bailey for contributing their voices to the pod. And thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the pod on whatever listening platform you're using and follow our Instagram at @genzine to be on the lookout for more episodes to come.